Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the 50th chapter of Isaiah, beginning at verse 4 and continuing through verse 9. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Here ends this reading. From God's holy word, this morning's New Testament reading is from the epistle to James in the third chapter, the opening 12 verses. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. This book of James, it's a a pretty accessible guidebook 
for first century Christian living. It continues to offer a source of guidance for those who would choose to be so instructed. In the opening of the third chapter, the focus is on just this very thing, instruction. We are told, for starters, dear mama, don't let your babies grow up to be teachers, to paraphrase Waylon Jennings. Well, okay, the author doesn't exactly say that, but he strongly discourages people from teaching unless they absolutely must. Teaching is, after all, a special and a sacred business, and it should not be entered into lightly. Unlike many other activities, from tax collecting, to shepherding, to winemaking, to carpentry, mistakes made while teaching can be impossible to undo, and they have tremendous lasting consequences. Now, this is true for secular studies, but the stakes are higher still when it comes to religious instruction. So, know that you are going to be held to a higher standard should you find yourself feeling called to teaching. The tools of those who teach haven't changed all that much in the years since the book of James was composed. Sure, there have been great advances made in the field of instructional technology, but the intelligence and the wisdom transmitted by the word, written and spoken, is still the preeminent educational delivery system. So choose and use your words carefully, thoughtfully, wisely, he advises. And that, my brothers and sisters in Christ, was and is excellent advice for those entrusted with the responsibility to teach. It is also, I think, pretty sound advice for anyone and everyone involved in public discourse in general. The tongue can and has gotten folks into all sorts of trouble back in the days of James, right up until the present. It has the capacity for starting raging fires. Have a look at some of the archival Lenny Riefenstahl propaganda films from the 1930s and listen to the translation of what Hitler was telling the tens and hundreds of thousands gathered to see and hear him, his charisma and message of evil powerfully motivated most of a nation. On the flip side, a generation later, the American evangelist Billy Graham would travel throughout the U.S. and Europe on a series of crusades, and his charisma and message of the good news powerfully motivated many millions who had gathered to see and hear him over the years. But why do you suppose the author of the New Testament epistle is here making such a big deal about teaching? After all, this letter of James is more often known as the place where disciples are taught that their works 
must be in line with their beliefs. Well, my educated guess is that he saw words as just as vital as works, vital, that is, to the faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ had to be taught so that it might be lived. There was precedent for this teaching in the tradition of the Hebrews, whose number probably included this very author and a goodly percentage of those who read or first heard this letter. From the very early days after receiving their freedom from captivity in Egypt to the gifting of the tablets of the law on Sinai, the Israelites had been exhorted to remember what God had done and was doing for them and to teach, to teach the generations to come of these things over and over throughout the account of the Old Testament. Prophetic voices are raised to remind the people to engage in such faith formation work. Even in our own day and time, memory is foundational to the formation, the interpretation, and the understanding of identity, as we heard in this morning's moment for mission. We need to remember what happened 20 years and a day ago. I was this week watching one of the many specials on this 20th anniversary of the terror attacks. And in a commercial break, it was a message from the 9-11 Memorial Foundation, a group found, founded in New York in the aftermath of the tragedy that transpired there, one of their stated goals is to help people remember. We can say that we will never forget, and certainly that may well be true. But for those not old enough to have experienced the events of that day and their aftermath, how will they know and remember if we don't teach them the sad but true story. That was the way that the faith was transmitted over the ages. One generation passing on the story in words to the next. And by the time of Jesus, hundreds of years later, things hadn't changed in that regard. This helps to explain, I think, why Jesus was seemingly so very disappointed and upset with the Pharisees of his own day. They were the ones who had been entrusted to oversee the teaching of God's word. And they were the ones who were, on the whole, not doing a very good job of it. Our own strain of the Protestant tradition also places a heavy emphasis on education and the need for sound teaching. The invitation that was extended by Colonel Stevens, that was responded to by Francis McKemmy, was only issued on account of there being a lack of well-trained teachers in the church here in the colony at the time. There were no seminaries yet for educating religious leaders in the colonies, so he sent a plea back to Egypt, to Europe. It would have been interesting if he'd sent that plea to Egypt. Our history might be very different. But no, it landed in, north, in the north of Ireland, a place where schools existed not far away. 
Many prestigious centers for education existed in Europe. And later, they would come to this country. Many were founded and funded by Presbyterians who continued to believe in the power of sound teaching. The power of sound teaching to help shape Christian lives and character in obedience to and gratitude for the word of God to them. Such places are necessary on account of that which the author of James points out the tongue has. Such great power for help or for harm. The tongue is, as noted, a unique instrument that has enabled mankind to develop the most sophisticated language among all God's creation, a creation which was, in the beginning, spoken by God into being. Having been made in the image of God, we have been blessed to receive creative power through our speech. Though as we were reminded at Babel, Ours is on a different scale and magnitude than that of the divine. Nevertheless, it is a gift, one which, one which we have been granted with the hope and with the expectation that we would employ it properly in service to the Lord. So be exceedingly thankful for and exceedingly careful, cautious, and prudent with this powerful ability. Whether we like it or not, whether we think it's fair or not, we who identify as Christian folk are held to a higher standard than others. Oftentimes, we're held to a higher standard by the world full of detractors who take pleasure in pointing out the flaws and the foibles and the faux pas of the faithful. But it bears reminding that we are held to a higher standard by the one whose name we have been given. And I think that this passage from James serves as a timely reminder of this. We can bring honor to the holy name by the words we choose. And we can bring scorn to the holy name as well. We can speak words to God that build up and strengthen our relationship with our maker and we can speak words that weaken our relationship, so too can we speak words to our neighbors that build up and strengthen our relationship with them or words that weaken our relationship and by so doing bring either honor or scorn from them toward the God whose ambassadors we are. Especially, I think, in times of crisis, we want to hear words of encouragement and reassurance from our secular and our religious leaders. Though I don't remember exactly what it was that George Bush said 20 years ago yesterday, I do know that it was sufficient in that day and I do know that five days after the president spoke to a shaken nation, I was in Sunday worship. And though I don't remember exactly what our minister preached about, I remember that it was woefully insufficient for that day. 
As teachers of the gospel and the way of Jesus Christ, then, we have been entrusted with a very powerful tool for manifesting the kingdom of God in and to the world. And the world is watching. Make no mistake. And the world is listening. Some of you may recall the stir created in international relations during the Reagan administration when the president was caught on a hot mic joking about when we would begin bombing the Soviet Union. He's certainly not the only politician to make such a gaffe. And earlier this week, I I read about an official in the National Football League who questionably called an offsetting penalty and began to explain why he made up an excuse to throw a flag at that point in the game, all without realizing that his mic was hot. As Christians, we should always assume that our mics are hot. I briefly forgot this on Thursday when I was passed in a 20-mile-an-hour zone by a reckless driver on a double-solid line who then proceeded to narrowly miss the pedestrian in the crosswalk ahead for whom I had slowed. In addition to laying on the car's horn, which is something I, I hardly ever do, I had some choice words for the inconsiderate motorists, one who could not hear me anyway, but my daughter in the passenger seat certainly could and did hear my outburst. Yes, my brothers and sisters, our mics are always hot. So bridle your tongues, as suggested in James. Bite them if you must, for from the same mouth Come blessing and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Indeed, this ought not to be so. Whom does your speech serve? May it forever be the one whose gift to us it is. And for that we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.